today on Summit Life with J.D. Greer. God just creates one star out of millions of stars that produces enough energy to light our earth, our planet for 13 billion years. Here is my question. If God's wisdom exceeds mine to the extent that his electrical generating power exceeds mine, then am I really in a place to hold God to account? Welcome back to Summit Life with pastor, author, and theologian, J.D. Greer. I'm your host, Molly Vitovich, and we are so thankful to be jumping into God's Word with you again today. Okay, so what do you think is God's most appealing attribute? Most people are attracted to His love and kindness, and they gravitate to verses that describe Him as our Father and our Shepherd. But today on Summit Life, Pastor J.D. reminds us that God is so much more than just loving and kind. And if we really want to know Him, we have to know as much as possible about Him. We can't just pick and choose. As always, if you miss any of our programs or if you're in search of our featured monthly resource, you can find it all online at jdcreer.com. But right now, let's join Pastor JD for this challenging message he titled, Holy and Awesome. We are in a series called The Name. The name, you have a name, and that name is important to you. Somebody's never really going to be that close to you if they don't take time to learn your name. In the same way, God has a name, and understanding his name is crucial to knowing him. For most people, I explained to you last week, God is a mystery. Uh, There are, are a number of people who aren't quite sure he exists, or if he does, how you could know that he exists. Um, there are other people who, um, you know, they would say, yeah, I'm, I, I believe that he exists. I know it can't be that nothing times nobody equals everything. So um, I believe that God exists, but I don't really know how you would know him or relate to him um, like a person. That confuses me when you speak, when you talk that way. Um, there are uh, even more of you perhaps listening to me who are, uh, I described last week as like I was. Um, you believe in God, you know uh, how to say I have a relationship with God, but for many years, um, I just felt no warmth of affection of emotions for God. I told you I would hear people talking about God and they would get emotional and I'd just be like, there's not a whole lot going on down in here. I believe in him. I know I'm going to answer to him, but there's no warmth of feeling for him. And um, there's a number of you that would, if you were honest, would be in that category. All these issues are addressed in scripture through coming to know the name of God. Exodus 34 is the place that we are working from. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to take it out and begin to open it to Exodus 34. That's where God declares his name to Moses. This weekend, I wanna talk about the holiness of God's name. You're gonna see the concept of holiness woven all through this passage. Holiness is the most commonly used descriptive word about God by Moses. Um, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, Holy is the word that runs through all those books. In fact, it's used 124 times to describe God in just Exodus and Leviticus. Holiness is one of those words that most Americans find bland and unattractive. They, if you ask them what holiness means, they're gonna think of some kind of bright, white, colorless light, or they think it means you know weirdly religious, so that if you say, you know, so-and-so is so holy, that's usually not a compliment. But holiness just means perfection. In English, the word comes from the word whole, like wholeness. And so when you're saying holiness, you're saying the something is complete, it is holistic in its goodness. It is the essence of goodness. It is something that I want to show you today that you yearn for, whether or not you've ever known what to call it. 
Um, for example, we want holiness in our relationships. Nobody wants a spouse who is unfaithful. Nobody wants a boyfriend who lies. Nobody wants a friend who exploits them. We want holiness in our business dealings. Nobody wants to deal with a contractor who shows up late, does inferior work, and overcharges us. Um, you may not have known what to call that, but what you're yearning for is holiness. Uh, let me show you. Exodus 34, um, real quick, let me just as you're turning there tell you that I always use multiple sources when I prepare messages. And uh, you can always access those, kind of trace where I'm coming from and stuff on the blog, uh, my blog, our website, our church's website. We always post the transcript um, before the weekend starts and you can just see it's all in there. Every dumb joke, everything, uh, where it all comes from. Uh, so I always use multiple sources, but um, for these concepts this weekend, I feel particularly indebted to um, Tim Keller. Uh, Tim Keller, as many of you know, if you've been here, serves as somewhat of a theological mentor for me. Uh, my Yoda, he is. Chapter 33, chapter 33, um, we'll, we'll get to 34 in a second, but when Moses um, begins this encounter by saying, God, let me see your glory. Let me see your glory. And here's how God responds. Chapter 33, verse 19 says this. And God said, I will make all my, here we go, goodness, there's your key word, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Verse 20. But God said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Is it not ironic that when God makes all his goodness pass before Moses, that his goodness is so good that Moses cannot actually look into his goodness without that goodness killing him? So God then tells Moses to take the 10 commandments, which are the moral expression of God's goodness, that God is a God who is truthful, he's just, he's pure, he's compassionate. And God says, I want you to hold these 10 commandments, which represent the moral expression of that. I want you to hold them in your hands. And God takes Moses and he puts him inside of a, a mountain, the cleft of a rock, and he covers him up with his hand. And then he passes by him. And then it says this, chapter 34, verse five, then the Lord descended in the cloud, and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. You're seeing again the concepts of holiness here. You saw goodness in the other verse. Descended here means that God is high and lifted up and he's coming down. Um, in the cloud, the cloud is mysterious. Even though God is coming close, he's still hidden. The cloud covers him. You still can't really see his shape. These are all the concepts of God's holiness that, that, that you see there in that chapter. Now, what we're gonna do is we're gonna leave Exodus and I want you to go to another place in the Bible. So if you got your Bible, um, leave Exodus 34. We're gonna go to Isaiah six for the rest of the week where we're gonna get an even more in-depth look at God's holiness. So flip over to Isaiah, um, but you can follow along there with me. Isaiah chapter six, verse one. Isaiah six, verse one, here we go. In the year, Isaiah is about to have a similar uh, experience very similar to Moses's. In the year that King Uzziah Died. Let's stop here and talk about who King Uzziah was. King Uzziah was one of Israel, Judah's most beloved kings. And everything was awesome right up until the very end when Uzziah got a little cocky and he thought he no longer needed the priest to offer sacrifices for him. He was so awesome, he could just do it himself. And so he goes into the temple and he's gonna offer incense to God and the, the clear violation, by the way, of what God had, had very clearly said. Um, so the priests come running in and look at Uzziah and say, Uzziah, you can't do that. And Uzziah turns to them 
um, and basically is saying, um, you shut up, I'm the king, and I will do what I want because I'm awesome. And as he's pointing at the priest, threatening them, um, it says that leprosy broke out in his forehead and then inch by inch just covered his entire body until there was not a spot of him that was not covered in leprosy. He ran out of the temple, uh, and a couple of months later, he died. That left Israel, you can imagine, in, in political turmoil. It's like the bottom has fallen out. Their beloved leader that they've depended on now for half a century, who has led them and kept the nation stable, has just fallen. He has fallen morally, and he has died. And everybody's looking into the future saying, what in the world is going to happen now? We're in utter dismay. The foundations of the nation have been shaken. In that very year, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. In other words, Uzziah just fell off his throne, but God's still on his. I saw him high and lifted up, right? And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. In Hebrew, that literally means the burning ones. Each of the seraphim angels had six wings. With two of the wings, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. The angels, the burning ones. You know, when in scripture, whenever an angel, a human being sees an angel, um, it's not the little overweight Cupid looking thing that we you know, like to put on our Hallmark cards where it's like a chubby um, three-year-old that has a toy bow and arrow. That's Whenever in scripture a human being sees an angel, the first thing the angel always says is, um, fear not, don't, don't die. You don't have to die. Uh, it looks like you're about to die, but you're not going to die. Um, when these angels, these angels that would scare us so badly if we saw them that we would feel like we were going to die, when these angels are before the throne of God, um, they have six wings, and with two-thirds of them, they are covering their parts of their body in worship. And with one-third, they are flying. Um, God is probably not trying to give us a mathematical formula there, but I think it raises a very interesting point. And that is that everything that we do as believers ought to arise from and be bathed in worship because the primary thing that God gave us as his followers is to sit in adoration and worship of him, not to work for him. Work arises out of worship. Okay, keep going here. Uh, let's see, where are we? Verse three, and he, one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The Hebrew language uses repetition to express superlative. So for example, in scripture, when it wants to say a deep pit in Hebrew, what it literally says is um, a pit pit. Um, or if you wanna say pure gold, you say gold, gold. Uh, that means like real gold. Um, this is the only instance in scripture where a superlative requires a threefold repetition. In other words, it's the only time you got something repeated three times, and it's telling you that God is pure and undefiled holiness. Holiness is his most defining characteristic. Notice the angels do not say power, power, power. They don't even say love, love, love. They say holy, holy, holy. Now, what does the word holy mean? What does it mean? Literally in Hebrew, the word kadosh means set apart, set apart, different, distinct, in these encounters, both Moses' and Isaiah's, we see God set apart in at least two ways. Number one, we see that God is set apart by his awesomeness. He's set apart by his awesomeness. He is high and lifted up. He dwells in, in clouded mystery. Um, there is smoke. There's, um, he's covered. He has to descend. Theologians call this the otherness of God. You see, often we want to reduce God to being just a slightly bigger, slightly stronger, slightly more intelligent version of us. You can see that in how we demand that God give us, for example, explanation for his actions. 
If you don't explain this to me and if I can't see this and this doesn't make sense, then I'm just gonna be mad at you and I'm gonna say that you don't exist and I'm gonna rebel against you as if we could bring God down and put him on trial as if he were one of us. But God is not just one of us, just a slob like one of us for you children of the 90s. Um, And at the end of the day, we are not in a position to judge him. That's kind of the whole point of the book of Job. Now, ironically, you and I know the reason that Job is suffering. It's told to us in chapters one and two. There's this cosmic theater going on and God is proving something to the angels um, through the life of Job. But what's interesting is that when, when, when God finally comes down to answer Job, here's what he says, chapter 38, verse 25. Uh, Job, the lightning bolts report to me. Which of the lightning bolts report to you? In fact, Job, why don't we get together and discuss um, the problems you have with me running my universe? We'll get together for coffee. And I'll tell you what, why don't you bring your universe that you've created and I'll bring my universe that I've created and then we'll compare notes and we'll just see who's doing a better job. Oh, you don't have a universe? Okay, then maybe you're not in a position to judge me about mine. Um, That's essentially what he tells him in the book of Job. Um, God says, you wanna put me on trial? Let's take a look at the expanse of your knowledge for a second. Now listen, I am not telling you there is never a place for you to question God. The Psalms are filled with people doing just that. But God's point in Job is that we are not supposed to ask God questions. We can ask him questions, but we're not to do so in a way that supposes we can bring God down to our level as if God had the answer to our bar of justice, as if we could see or know enough to bring God into judgment. The way Isaiah would say it in Isaiah is this, Isaiah 55, my thoughts, God says, they're not even your thoughts. It's not that I just got a better version of your thoughts. It's that your thoughts and my thoughts don't really even compare. My ways are not your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. We know now even more than Isaiah would have known when he wrote that, how high the heavens are above the earth. Billions of light years is how high that distance is. And if the distance between God's wisdom and my wisdom is the distance between his power and my power, then it makes sense that there's a lot of things that I may not immediately be able to grasp yet because God is not on my level and we are not peers. You're listening to Summit Life with J.D. Greer and a message titled, Holy and Awesome. We'll be right back with more teaching in just a moment, but I wanted to tell you about our brand new resource we just began offering. This teaching series will show us a God that is both more awe-inspiring and more intimate than we could have ever imagined. And we have the ability to embrace that intimacy and communicate with the living God through prayer. So our new bundle of resources includes three short books on prayer that are designed to boost your prayer life with fresh ideas and approaches. Each chapter takes a passage of scripture and looks at how it can influence how we pray for a specific issue. Give us a call today at 866-335-5220 or go online to jdgreer.com to reserve your bundle. Now let's get back to our teaching. Here's Pastor JD. You see, the classic objection that people have to Christianity, it's probably the number one, is what we call the problem of evil. And the problem of evil, it's basically built on two premises. It goes like this. Um, If God is all powerful, then God could stop evil and suffering. If God is all loving, then he would want to stop evil and suffering, but evil and suffering still happen. Therefore, God must not be all powerful or all loving. And a God who is not all powerful or all loving would not be the Christian God. Therefore, God does not exist. That's the explanation of the problem of evil. But I've explained to you before that that problem is missing a premise. And that premise is this, that if God is all powerful and he is, and if God is all loving, which he is, then it would also follow that God is all wise. 
And if God is all wise and his wisdom exceeds my wisdom to the extent that his power exceeds my power, then it makes sense that there might be a lot of things that my small mind are not immediately be able to grasp, at least at the present moment. Does that make sense? All right, think about how much higher God's power is than yours. I had an illustration of this yesterday um, at the gym where I work out. It's called Iron Tribe. They have these little, what they call rowing machines. And, uh, you know, you get on there and row for two minutes and you feel like you're going to die. Um, and so uh, you, there's a little way you can track your, you know, what you're doing and you can do watts, like how many watts you're producing. And so uh, I'm in like a two-minute rhythm. And so, you know, at two minutes, and that's all I got, um, you know, I check and I see and I've averaged about 240 watts, you know, for that time. And I think 240 watts, that's enough to power four light bulbs. I can power four light bulbs and then I feel like I am going to pass out. If I really push myself, I can get to 300, 320 uh, for about 30 seconds and then I feel like I'm going to die. And that's five light bulbs. Okay, that is the extent of my electrical engineer. um, You know, that's how much electricity I can produce. The sun, the sun, our sun generates enough energy in one second, one second to supply all U.S. energy needs for 13 billion years. And God just spoke the sun into existence. He just like, let there be light. There's light. I work my heart out for two minutes and I can light four light bulbs. God just has a throw aside comment and he creates one star out of millions of stars that produces enough energy to light our earth, our planet for 13 billion years. Here is my question. If God's wisdom exceeds mine to the extent that his electrical you know, generating power exceeds mine, then am I really in a place to hold God to account? He says, Job, I can't explain it to you right now, but why don't you just sit and watch and why don't you to think about the extent of my power? Again, please understand, I'm not saying there's no place for you to ask questions. I'm not saying that God's purposes have no rhyme or reason or that we will never grasp them. I'm just saying that we should approach the question with the knowledge that God is holy, that God is awesome, that he is glorious. We should not be surprised that some of his purposes remain hidden from us, at least temporarily. And just because we cannot see a good reason for something bad, doesn't mean that there is not a reason why God is allowing certain things to happen. God is holy, he is beyond the beyond. He is above the above. And I know that can be difficult for many of us because we really wanna shrink God down to our size so that we can predict him, so we can compartmentalize him, so we can control him, right? But that is not a God that is worthy of worship. It's like Evelyn Underhill, the the British political writer of the early 20th century used to say, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshiped. So God is set apart in his awesomeness. Number two, God is set apart in his moral perfections. He's set apart in his moral perfections. God is pure goodness with no mixture of bad at all. He is without injustice, without deceit, without capriciousness, pettiness, or impurity. Now, as I told you, these are all things that we value in people, but they're gonna find their ultimate expression in God. God's goodness is so good. It's so good that it cannot tolerate um, a lack of goodness or it cannot tolerate evil. Um, Habakkuk 1.13, you are of such pure eyes, Habakkuk says, that you can't even see evil. I've compared it before to, with you to, to somebody handing you a nice big glass of iced tea. And as you're drinking this glass of iced tea, they say, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, it's mixed with about 2% human urine. You don't say, oh, well, 98% good. That's a pretty good, you know, that's like an A rate. No, you don't do that. You would, you would spit it out. Why? Because that amount of impurity would just make the whole thing nauseous to you. 
God is so good that um, injustice and impurity and dishonesty cannot be tolerated in his character because he's pure goodness. But go back to Isaiah, at the sight of God's holiness, watch this, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke, the temple. And I said, Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have now seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God's holiness is terrifying. It's terrifying. The angels have to cover their faces when they're in the presence of God. The temple, the pillars of the temple, which aren't even people, they're shaking with fear. Isaiah, the prophet of God, the man with the message, God's appointed messenger for that generation. Isaiah falls on his face and he says, I'm lost. I'm ruined. I'm undone. When Job, whom God called righteous, when Job finally saw God, he says, I'd heard about you with my ears and I believed in you, but now I see you and I abhor myself. I hate myself and I repent in, in dust and ashes. I'll give you one other interesting place. You see this in the New Testament. So you, you see, it's not just an Old Testament thing. Um, and Jesus in Mark chapter four, one of the best stories from Jesus's life. Um, they're out on the, um, the ocean and Jesus is asleep in the boat and this hurricane rises up and the disciples who are experienced fishermen think they're going to die. Right, And in a rather humorous exchange, they finally wake Jesus up, who is evidently sound asleep, and they're like, what's wrong with you? We're about to die. And Jesus stands up, and he's kind of you know, wiping sleep out of his eyes. And he's like, what are you guys whining about? And then he just kind of holds up his hand, and he's like, cut it out. And the whole thing just goes immediately placid. Right? I mean, it's, almost like he's, it's almost like he turned off a car alarm. You know, whose, storm, whose geo storm is this? He just stands up and turns it off. Here's what's interesting about the story. It says that after Jesus did that, the disciples were, get this, greatly afraid. During the hurricane, when they thought they were going to die, they were only afraid. After Jesus calmed the storm, they were greatly afraid. In other words, they were more terrified by the rescue than they were by the storm. That's God's holiness. They are seeing the extent of his power and it is terrifying to them. Why is God's holiness terrifying to us? Give you a handful of reasons. First, just to be in the presence of greatness is terrifying. Just to be in the presence of greatness is terrifying. Have you ever really been in the presence of greatness? Let me bring it down to a human level so we can start there and I'll work back up to God. You ever been in the presence of human greatness? Uh, when I was a teenager, um, uh, and uh, like every other kid in North Carolina, every other boy, my hero was Michael Jordan. So my, one of my life's ambition was I want to meet Michael Jordan. Uh, when I was 14 years old, um, there was a golf tournament in Winston-Salem where Michael Jordan was a charity tournament. He was going to come play. So me and my best friend went, and the whole day, all we were trying to do is find where Michael Jordan was. Uh, at the very end of the day, I'm just standing on this little like you know road in the golf course, and I see, I see this purple Porsche 924 Carrera, and I was a devotee, so I knew that was Michael Jordan's car. And I see it coming down the road, and I turned around to my friend who was getting food, and I was like, that's Michael Jordan! So he runs over, and a bunch of people run over, and I'm here at the front of the line, and Michael Jordan's rolling up, and um, he rolls down his window because he's looking for somebody, and my friend, my best friend, takes me and shoves me in my head into Michael Jordan's car up to my waist. We're right there, just eye to eye, and Jordan, you know, he's just uber cool. He's just he got his hand in his car. He turns over, he looks at me, cuts his eyes like this. He says, get out of my car. <laughs> and I pulled back and I turned around, I promise you. And I looked at that crowd and I went, he talked to me. He talked to me. Michael Jordan has spoken to me. Now, um, for me, Michael Jordan, just to be in his presence is a mixture of fascination and fright, right? Because that's what it always means to be in the presence of greatness. Fascination, you're simultaneously attracted and repelled at the same time. 
right? Rudolf Otto, the German philosopher said, that's how you know when you're worshiping. Whenever you're filled with a sense of fascination and fright at the same time. Fear of the Lord isn't a bad thing. It means you understand his power and his glory. You're listening to Summit Life and a message titled Holy and Awesome from J.D. Greer. Today, we'd like to get a very encouraging resource into your hands. It's a set of three guides that will help you to pray for three unique aspects of your life, your kids, your parents, and your community. Each prayer suggestion is based on a passage of the Bible, so you can be confident as you use it that you are praying great prayers, prayers that God wants you to pray because they're based on His Word. We'll be glad to send you these books on prayer to express our gratitude for your financial support. When you give to Summit Life, you make it possible for us to deliver these daily Bible teachings and all of the other resources on our website. So give today and join our mission to bring the gospel into center focus. Donate by calling 866-335-5220. That's 866-335-5220. Or you can request them when you give online at jdgreer.com. I'm Molly Vitovich. Be sure to listen tomorrow when we'll continue learning more about the holiness of our awesome, powerful God. That's right here Wednesday on Summit Life with J.D. Greer. Today's program was produced and sponsored by J.D. Greer Ministries.